0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done well over 400 of them now and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you will see all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So, if you appreciate it and would like to support it to any extent, it's important, and uh, we appreciate your support. My guest today is Vera de Chalember. I'll just read her little bio here first. Vera is a spiritual storyteller and Harvard educated scholar of comparative religion. She speaks and writes about spiritual culture, mindfulness in the modern world, and the divine feminine and has been a speaker at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in the U.S. and Europe, Sister Giant in Washington, D.C., and other gatherings. Vera holds a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School where she studied comparative mysticism and a bachelor's degree from the University of Florida in religion and literature She also happens to speak about four languages fluently. Her work explores the meeting place of creativity, psychology and spirituality and is informed by insights from both Eastern and Western philosophies. Vera is a graduate of the Barbara Brennan School of Healing and has been a student of Jason Shulman's non-dual healing work. She is deeply influenced by Buddhist and Kabbalistic lineages. Vera's recent work has been on the topic of holy darkness and exploration of the dark goddesses associated with transformation and initiation found in the world's great wisdom traditions, the most well-known of whom is the Hindu goddess Kali. Vera is a mother and a devotee of the mother. She's working on her first book on the dark feminine. So, Mm -hmm. welcome Vera.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Rick. You know, when you read the, the I'm always wondering, like, whose bio is that? And <laughs> why is it being read? And that person seems like they have something figured out. And that is absolutely not the case for me. So I, I'm so grateful that you invited me. And I'm not quite sure, as you know, why, but I'm really grateful to talk with you. And- well,
0: I am too. Um, I first really became aware of you um, some months, sometime earlier this year, when I was. Although I think you said we met at, at the SAND Conference, but I don't remember that actually. But I was reading a thing on, on the, the SAND Conference, one of those SAND Conference emails that go out, the Science and Non-Duality Conference emails, and it was so beautifully written and that I had to email Maurizio, the organizer of the SAND Conference, to ask, who wrote this? And he said, oh, it was Vera de Chalembert, and I said, wow, it's beautiful, mm-hmm. it's deep, it's profound, it's so nicely written, said, so, you know, you have to get to know this person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I started reading some of your stuff, and you wrote uh, several articles about Collie, especially that one where the, when a picture of Collie was pr- projected on the Empire State Building in right. New York. And, Isn't that uh, cool? Yeah, it was. How, it was oh, interesting. Oh, they're great articles, and I I posted one to my Facebook page, and somehow or other that caught Marianne Williamson's attention, and then she ended up inviting you to Sister Giant.
1: <laughs>
0: so in any case. You know, you, you're kind of self-effacing and, and a little shy and not used to all this publicity stuff, but I really think you have something to say. You know, I'm sure if we spoke 10 years from now you'd have even more to say, but you know, we're all works in progress and you know, you're very humble and that's, that, that in itself is a qualifier for being on this show actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm humble. <laughs> I just am very scared. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it takes humility to say that. And it's natural. There are some famous actors like you know, Meryl Streep and people who still get butterflies when they have to do something in a public way. So it's just a human reaction. Okay, so you have a very interesting story and I thought it would be interesting to start with that story, where you were born, some of your, you know milestones growing up in terms of your growing awareness of God mm-hmm. and spirituality and so on. It's a fascinating story. So let's let's start with that. You were born in, in Ukraine in the former Soviet Union. Yeah,
1: exactly. In the former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. When I say that I realize I'm older than I <laughs> than I think. So I, I was born in the former Soviet Union. And I was born quite premature. And I'm only mentioning that because as I as I think about my life I realize that's actually a really big piece for me. I um, was born like about two and a half months premature, and I spent a lot of time in an incubator. And I think that that affected me in a particular way is like this early, early trauma, where I didn't I didn't have a sort of a built-in container. My childhood was spent in this like boundaryless place, where I couldn't tell where you know I was kind of feeling everything all the time. Everything was kind of directly moving through me and I think that uh, there is this way in which I'm still continuing to heal that that gap, that kind of developmental gap of not having many boundaries or healthy boundaries.
0: It would seem that someone who spends their first couple of months in an incubator isn't getting a lot of touching and closeness to the mother and Mm -hmm. all that, that must have an effect.
1: Exactly. Mm. Yes. And so, so I, I from as early as I could remember myself, there was really this sense of feeling everyone and kind of seeing everything from above a little bit. Hmm. I, I even had this, I remember a really early memory of like looking into my hands and then zooming into inside my head into like this black box inside my head. And then just woof, popping out. Hmm. And that was like a, a, an experience that I think I was the body. And when I was born, I had casts. I, I was crippled. I was born with feet in and under. And I had... Casts for the first two and a half years of my life. Wow. And so I think having the experience of being in the body as I came into this, this world wasn't very comforting for me. And so I just hung out elsewhere. Hmm. And so if I had to say, I would say that my path so far has been a path into this body, into incarnation, right, like learning how to, how to tolerate how to tolerate the muchness and the beauty and the heartbreak and the discomfort of this world also i think that went along or that kind of matched my very early sens- sensibility of moving towards the divine and i came from, i lived in like this jewish secular Environment where God was poetry and art and protest and literature and my mother, instead of reading me fairy tales, would read me these like um, (laughs) beautiful, heartbreaking poetry from Marina Tsvetaeva and Anna Akhmatova. They're these these soul wailers of the Russian soul, if you will, right? People who have seen the the shattering of their worlds, who lived through revolutions, you know, have and, and I think that really profoundly affected me. And I remember the first time I heard the word God as a child, it was outside of the home, somewhere, maybe in like, you know, kindergarten situation. And it's like my whole body landed. Mm. It was like oh yeah, this is where I belong. And then I've I've been like a one-trick pony ever since. It's like my only my only interest, my only my only direction, my only my only devotion. And in so many ways, you know. Uh so when I was I as I was telling you, we talked a little bit before before our interview, and I grew up in this city called Dwov, which before World War II was actually a Polish city. And a lot of Polish people loved and Martin Buber was born and raised there, many incredible thinkers and scientists. And uh so many people, Polish people loved the city so much that many of them stayed instead of going back to Poland once this once the city became became uh, Soviet, mm-hmm. and that meant that there that that I grew up in like a trilingual culture Russian Polish Ukrainian and I went to a Polish school and where every, all the subjects were in Polish and also what, what, what we should know about Polish people is that they're very deeply and devotionally Catholic and although in the Soviet Union religion didn't exist it was a topic it was like a topic non grata it was not really allowed, welcomed you could get into serious political trouble if you if you practiced any form of religion um, uh, there, was, there were nuns and priests coming into my school because it was a Polish school teaching subversively religion and for me, that was just, that was like, that was heaven. That was all I ever wanted. And so secretly from my parents, because I figured that wouldn't be so kosher, <laughs> I, I studied with the nuns and the priests and, and, and had my first communion, secretly went and had my first communion at like 10, where I confessed that I'm not actually Catholic. And <laughs> and maybe this is not very kosher of me. but and then And then the next... I came back home and I told my parents and they didn't know what to do with me. What do you do with this, right? My dad was like, Oy vey! My mother was like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and so then I thought, okay, this is maybe very unkosher because I was never baptized. Mm. So I went at the time, this is like right as the, this at this moment now, this is right as the Soviet Union fall, uh, breaks, breaks down, right? And there's mass chaos and there's economic and social... Um, uh, I mean, really chaos, currency is changing all the time. People are wailing openly in the streets and digging through garbage dumps. Um, there's no bread. There's no. It, it's like a real collapse of of my world at the time. And you know, <laughs> where where some kids kind of had have this narrative of if it's, when the when their parents have a divorce, there's like this little voice that says this is my fault that they got divorced. Somehow, the way it landed in me was that it was my fault that the world around me was collapsing. Mm-hmm. That somehow that somehow I wasn't, I don't know, pure enough. So, that I could have somehow been better. Um, and so, for after the Catholic Catholic um, kind of um, First Communion, I, I, um, they had mass baptisms at the time. And I uh, snuck into a mass baptism in an Armenian Orthodox Church because my mother's father was Armenian and I kind of, kind of thought, oh, wow, there's a connection there. And so, I, you know, I, I, I had a baptism there. There were Baptists coming in. In stadiums, kind of doing the Holy Spirit thing, and of course I, that was the, you know that, that was my life. I was sneaking away to try and find God everywhere and then um, we were very fortunate to be to become political refugees at the time um, and we immigrated my family and I when I was twelve eleven to uh, to the to Florida mm-hmm. and when I came to Florida. This other world opened up because you see, Judaism in the former Soviet Union was considered a, a, an ethnic identity, a national identity. It was something stamped in your passport that you had to hide most of the time because it, there was true, sort of systemic anti-Semitism, and so that was not something you wanted you wanted out there. and so I, I, he, and, and it was very pervasive. I mean, even as children, people would the teachers would say, "All the Russian kids raise your hands, all the Ukrainian kids raise your hands." right so until it got to me. I, I didn't want to raise my hand. You know, this is something you wanted not to. You yeah. wanted to fit in. You didn't want to stick out. You didn't want this to be your your cross to bear, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, And then I came to America, where all of a sudden, not only was it okay to be Jewish, but it was a religion yeah I mean that was a great moment for me where I thought, oh my god there was there was something about my lineage that could tr- connect me to the divine too and so and so then I kind of dove into into the jewish tradition and and because I came to to america i didn 't speak english i felt I felt like I was split and that that my world was cut off somehow in the sense that there was no way that I could communicate where I was coming from, the gray and the heartbroken and the devastated and the you know, and the shattered, and then into the Florida sunshine, smiling people, large supermarkets. You know, with, with 25,000 colors and cheeses and breads. While I was, you know, just coming of waiting, and I mean, this is so so interesting of waiting. It was like that moment where people were waiting in line for bread. I was waiting and run. That was my only responsibility as a kid, right? For like an hour, an hour and or an hour, much more, until there was no bread when you got to the front. So, like, these kinds of very difficult um, dissonance. There was such a dissonance between my new life in America and my, my old life. I had such a difficult time finding my place and, you know, integrating. These various kind of narratives that were that formed formed me, and so what happened then, as I was becoming a teenager and felt like I so did not believe, is that I, I drowned myself in books. And what I did is I went into the library and I read every New Age book in the library, I, you know, and, and I, I read indiscriminately: <laughs> philosophy, religion, uh, Ramdas, uh, you know, everything I could get my my hands on. And um, not surprisingly, that led me when I came to college that led me into a pretty pretty easy choice of of direction, which was religious studies and, and comparative uh, literature at the time as well. And I was extremely fortunate because I came to the University of Florida. And at that time, the University of Florida had this emergence happening. And the faculty of the arts and sciences and the medical school at UF had these incredible professors who were all kind of, profoundly interested in consciousness studies, who were very deeply influenced by the work of Ken Wilber, mm-hmm. and who uh, formed something called the Center for Spirituality and Health. And it was largely due to a patronage of Mickey Singer. I don't know if you know who Michael Singer is. I
0: do. I'd like to get him on the the show sometimes. Of
1: the untethered Soul. So at the time, he didn't yet write a book. He wasn't yet on the scene. But he already had this beautiful place called the Temple of the Universe in the woods in Alachua, Mm -hmm. where he would invite lots of different spiritual teachers. And he was one of the patrons of the center who made it and made it possible for the center to begin inviting some of the world's great mystics and thinkers and spiritual teachers. And my mentor at the time was the director of the center. His name was Shia Eisenberg, Sheldon Eisenberg. And he was really my first spiritual mentor. Um, He was a renewal rabbi and a Wilbury, a Wilburian kind of integral theory thinker. He was the chair of the department of religion at the time. And he really took me under his wing and, and mentored me. And actually, it's funny, I just learned David data, also he was one he was his first mentor as well. Mm-hmm. And so I became the student director of the center. and somehow at that time arose this community of students where we all had the same longing. We all had that same thirst for spirituality, for, for embodied spirituality, for paradox. It was really interesting. and who who we got to meet were like we had lunch with Ram Das mm-hmm. and Father Thomas Keating was the inaugural guest. I mean, it was just such a... a, Rev Zalman would come and work with us. And this wasn't like, oh, a a moment or a talk. They would come and they would spend time with us. And they would do kind of a weekend-long kind of workshops with us. So I really felt so deeply shaped by that time both because by 1920 I read everything Ken Wilber ever wrote, so it was difficult to have a kind of magical, mythical understanding of religion, and also because I began to, and it felt like, receive transmissions from these elders, from these incredible teachers in our culture, who I got to experience firsthand. And also kind of grew this community of students when we came together and had a contemplative community that formed. Um, at the time, it looked like, in a very, from like a wisdom circle, right? It was a very circular kind of process, but that we we came together every Sunday morning uh, or Saturday morning, I don't remember anymore, and really shared our processes and. Integrate, trying to integrate all these different practices that we were being given. For example, um, centering prayer. When Father Keating came and taught us, right, we would do these practices together. We would we would see how they how they meet our our ordinary human lives and you know post teenage dramas. And it was quite a quite a profound shaping uh, time for me. And then I went off. Then I went off to Harvard Divinity School mm-hmm. where. Where um, I also got a lot of pieces, and I, st- I was really fascinated by, on one hand, um, co- comparative mysticism. I, I, I was interested in how the experience of mystics across the spectrum of 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 uh, different religiosities and religions compared. What did they all experience? What was the language that they used? Um, and then on the other, there was this other academic part of me that really was interested in um, discourses of power. What are the, you know, how does, how, how does reason oppress? How does language trap us? Mm. Um, and so somehow I feel like these things are continuously moving through me, the questions of power, the questions of how we form identity, um, and how do we connect to the real? How do we connect to the real? And so then I went off and studied for four years in the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. And really for me, that was the real divinity school My in experientially in the sense in which it was all about working with trauma, doing profound kind of um, psycho-spiritual process work where I didn't just get to talk about being afraid. I got to, to scream it out and beat it out and imbo- kind of use use my body in the healing process and so that was really the beginning of my kind of descend into what I think as as my incarnation I think until that time I was really living maybe from the heart up but maybe from the neck up and it was in the Brennan school where there was a lot of core energetic work that was being done that I began to understand that this body isn't something to because I, I understood it on a mental level, I mean, you know, integral theory and such, but not in an experiential way. And so I also began to become more and more sensitive to subtle worlds and to subtle energy realities.
0: Like, give us an example or two of that, how you, um, how you experience that.
1: Well, I mean, on a, on a large scale, it's like we go around thinking, okay, even though I had these very expanded experiences from a very early age where I wasn't located in my body, let's say, and I, you know, all kinds of things happened. And I always felt like I was someone in a liminal space between this world and the next. So that there's so many kinds of experiences, right? But as working as a healer, which was kind of what I was doing at the time, it was like an entire new, before it, but there was like an intuition, and a general sense of something invisible being there, it began to be as concrete as like a rock. So running energy began to be as real as having rocks thrown at me, Mm -hmm. for example. It wasn't something intuitive or amorphous. I began to perceive what different people's traumas look like in their field. Sometimes I would be in a healing and and these entire kind of movies would open up about someone's life, Mm -hmm. right? And then you would feel kind of I don't know. You know, is this my projection? What is that? So I began to explore. I began to explore these more subtle realms. Yeah, it was it was quite an interesting process. And I, and I want to say I had. I had experiences, pretty profound experiences, especially at a certain point, of kind of psychic opening. Mm-hmm. When I was eighteen, I went to this retreat as kind of a silent retreat, and at some point. I think my container wasn't strong enough to kind of tolerate what opened up for me. And it looked like, people kind of seek enlightenment or awakening, but it looked like for me a kind of a peak experience that my body couldn't tolerate. Like I I was in a kind of expanded state, I went to sleep, I saw a bunch of dreams, and then I went into a darkness. And I couldn't turn off. I couldn't turn off. My awareness of it, and it felt like like an infinity, like an eternity. And then new dreams came up. Like basically, what happened was that for a whole night, I I couldn't turn off. And, And when I woke up, I couldn't tell if my body was real anymore. I kind of had this kind of break, and I remember like laughing hysterically. And they came, and people were coming up to me, and they were, "You should leave." And they didn't, they they didn't feel comfortable with me leaving. But everything just kind of
0: broke
1: open. It broke open except it broke open in a very dissociative way, mm-hmm. right? I couldn't tell what was real, I couldn't tell what was happening. And I think and that was a that was a, 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 19, 18, 19 and I think that wasn't very helpful for me, actually. I think that that the rest of my time was kind of from that point on was spend mending what kind of broke open p- prematurely, mm-hmm. integrating my personality and luckily, I was at the time in a context where I had mentors and, and at the University of Florida. So so this is just like an overall background. Uh, and then after the Barbara Brennan School of Healing, I started working with Jason Shulman, who's really my my teacher, who's this wonderful, wonderful Baba for me. Uh, who's not very known and I'm not exactly sure why because he I think he's one of the most integrated teachers on the scene
0: We've been looking at and, him and even before I knew that you were connected with him over over the last couple weeks We've been looking at him and thinking well this guy looks interesting He is should absolutely have him on the show extraordinary,
1: extraordinary yeah. because he, bri- he bridges the theistic which means God-centered mm-hmm. narrative uh, or spiritual way of being this devotional God-centered way with the non-dual perspective he is a Zen teacher, his lineage on one side is Zen, and then what happened to him was that the Kabbalistic Kabbalah opened up for him, because if you know anything about Kabbalah, you will know it is esoteric, it is impossible to understand, it is is kind of heady and difficult to touch with a 10-foot pole, but what what happened in his case was that the entire lineage opened itself up to him and kind of began flowing through him Mm. in the direction of how to use that lineage and that wisdom for, the, for healing hmm. in a healing way, and so he brought the Buddhist and the Kabbalistic together, nice. and those traditions have always been the sort of dominant shaping kind of narratives for me. For example, I worked with Reb Zalman, as I mentioned, and when I was 20-something, 21, I was one of the youngest people to He used to be really, really interested in eldering and aging and saging and I was one of the youngest people to do that the, that work with him because I was so interested also somehow in where does wisdom come from? And so he worked, of course, a lot with the Kabbalistic lineages and I felt it kind of moving through me in some way. And when I met Jason, I mean, actually, I remember I just heard about Jason and my my entire body felt like, yes, and I went and I googled him and I knew I had to work with him. It was like this, you know how it happens with teachers. Yeah. He was really... He was mine. He was mine. and. I did another three years of of working with him, really, really shifted the way I look at healing, the way I looked at the awakening process.
0: In what way did it shift?
1: I stopped using the spiritual life and the healing process to get out of my pain. Mm. His work was like a deep invitation for radical hospitality to everything. Mm -hmm. Very tantric in its nature, really, in that way. And a real invitation to paradox, to not resolving, to not fixing things, to not using anything to save ourselves from reality, but rather using everything that arises for deeper intimacy with what's with what's here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's like a lot of the teachings that I got before intellectually, or even maybe spiritually, began to be embodied, beginning to be embodied while I was working with him. Mm-hmm. And he, he has a number of really fantastic books. One of them is the Instruction Manual for Receiving God, and I really highly recommend it. It's just a few seed, seed passages. That he that have come through him, and I love it so much. So Jason was a really deep, deep part of my heart and, for, and formative influence. And then I went off to Paris. Actually, I went off to Paris before that. I Went off to Paris with the love of my, with my great love, who was a French man. And very quickly, I had children, which was another part of, of I feel initiation for me, motherhood. Talk about embodiment, Mm. you know, talk about spiritual teaching, right? Everything that you've ever wanted to deny about yourself comes straight up in your face and everything is triggered and sleepless nights, it breaks you down, Mm. breaks you open. It really brings you into the body and as a woman you become the food. You become the food of every kind, emotional, psychological, physical. Mm. That was extremely challenging for me, especially for me as my natural proclivity was not hanging out in this world, not knowing how to change the, the diapers, not knowing how to make the food, not knowing how to do any of this human stuff that was so abhorrent to me, you know, and even though I could talk about... Embodiment, and I still do, and it's still I still this is still where I wrestle. So please don't. In no way do I do I want to say that I'm now beyond this. This is this is the territory that it keeps moving through me over and over again. But when I became a mother, it was particularly eloquent for me.
0: Well, you know, you said something in the very beginning, and you're alluding to it now also, which is that. I mean, if I could rephrase it in my own words, it's like we're all kind of learning how to live on this planet. I think we all have a sense that perhaps we came from somewhere else or we ultimately belong somewhere else or something and it's it's intense here and it's difficult and, and we never get a break in terms of having to learn and and deal with stuff and as we were discussing the other day when we were doing audio testing that you know we're all bozos on this bus
1: I um, love that so much, yeah, <laughs> I'm the, a bozo, we're all bozos on this bus, yeah, totally, we Everybody's
0: kind bus. of in the same boat, and if we think that someone else has it all figured out and doesn't have any challenges, then we're just not seeing the situation clearly.
1: Yeah, you know, and and frankly, what else but becoming intimately familiar with our own suffering mm-hmm. can move us towards service, towards healing, towards the awakening process cuz what does that mean the awakening to what and what you know how many how many more men does it take to go up a mountain to stare at walls so so we're awake it's not such a big deal i mean i feel like for someone who's kind of more prone to expanded states of consciousness i'm constantly like so what yeah right and of course there's so many different qualities of experience but really it's oh on some level for me it's always been like cool but so what like what now what now so we get an insight what now how do we how do we bring it down how do we how do we work with that broken and that human in us that that isn't about some kind of other state but like here and now
0: and yeah just this morning i was listening to a a sand Conference panel from a couple of years ago with um, Matthew Wright, Adam Bucko, and Francis oh,
1: Bennett. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, and Francis what, Bennett. The best, the best, I think it was the best Sand panel ever. Oh, good. So you, was-
0: you listening to that? You, hear, you heard that? And, and they were kind of um, talking about this very point of the non-dualists versus the sort of you know people who might be non-dualists meaning those who might tend to dismiss the whole thing as an illusion and, and you don't deal with your personal stuff and, and all that stuff, versus those who kind of been there, done that, and realized that, you know, okay, what's next, as you just said, is that you actually do have to deal with it all and kind of come down into it and learn how to live in it and so on.
1: Well, I mean, it seems to me, and I'm so grateful to be able to see this shift in our pop spiritual culture, I Mm -hmm. feel like that's kind of, and even in the non-dual culture of whatever we, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the people, that there seems to be this movement of integration, right? This kind of descent back down into, into, um, incarnation. And I think it's like, there's also this way in which, you know, we talk so much about the emergence of the feminine on, of, in this time on the planet. And I feel like almost unanimously, everyone can feel it in some way. Right. And I write and, and, and think a lot about this, but, but there seems to be almost this natural emergence of, of a spiritual teaching through reality, through culture, through everything, where we are being, that made to face our reality here and now, right? Like we're being brought back down into the mud, into the yuck, into the mess, into the heartbreak of it all. And my God, thank God, thank God. Enough, enough already with like, you know, blissing out in in, in mountaintops. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have con- deeply contemplative spiritual lives. We, we we should and we must. But like, you know, Andrew Harvey always and andrew harvey always always speaks about sacred activism right when when the when the passion and love of the mystic for god and the and the passion of the activist for justice come together this this third fire emerges within us that can actually be an offering to this world yeah right you know
0: the farmer throws his corn into the mud and then and then yeah. gets much more corn that way, so...
1: Well, and you know, and even in, I think in the, in the yogic tradition, there's this very famous meme of, you know, no, no, lo- no mud, no lotus,
0: mm, Yeah.
1: no mud, no lotus, and so my interest has always been in some way like the feminine movement, you know, the masculine is the movement towards up and away, towards transcendence, mm-hmm. the feminine movement is down into the body, into our sensuality, into desire, into devotion. Even when we were talking in preparation, I said, "You know, if I, I'm really nothing, if I'm anything, I'm like a devotee. I am at the feet of the mother. I will worship. I will wail. I, I don't have anything to offer, but but those qualities. I feel like this, like heartbreak and longing of which my heart is woven, right? And so that's a really that's a really downward movement." And you said bhakta, right? Like that I have like this bhakta.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm sure you're not suggesting that it has to be either or. Like, oh, like so there are these two camps, you know, the up and out no, and, no. and the down and in. It's like integration, both and.
1: Both and. Always both and. And for me, it has certainly been the, the, the initial movement is completely up, as you know, up and away. Mm-hmm. And that natural tendency where I think we tend to use that as defense, mm-hmm. as a way to save ourselves from all of this muchness. And all of this pain yeah. and so um, and, but, but it seems to me that my work emerges from this other place. It seems to me that wh- what is emerging on our planet right now is inviting us into this other place. Mm-hmm. M- probably because this place, the feminine really has been exiled because because it must become integrated. Into our spiritual lives, into our political, social, ecological realities, right? Some I don't remember who said Claire Dakin, Dakin, right? She said, "The exclusion of the feminine has led us to a world on the edge of collapse. Mm. The reemergence is going to be a dance to behold."
0: Interesting, a beautiful quote,
1: right? And so, so it's like, yeah.
0: So, hang on a second. So, the, lo, what we've discussed for the last three or four minutes, I'm going to leave as a teaser because we're going to get into it much more. But I'm going to bring you back to your story. So Because I think the whole complete story is interesting. Um, so, you're in Paris. You were raising these kids, and life is great Perfect
1: life, healing, healing, healing center.
0: practice, and
1: healing practice. Great, great husband,
0: great kids, great this, great that.
1: Beautiful, everything. You know, like the fairy tale. Uh huh. The fairy tale.
0: Uh-huh.
1: The fairy tale.
0: Yeah. And then you I think a critical point was you went yes. to some alma program. Right?
1: Yeah. You know, um so what I should say fairy tale and a very deep sense that I'm containing. I can't let go, I'm containing. I don't containing it to not change. Mm. Like, right like there was already a sense in which i i i was a f- i was living with this rigid in a rigid way which is actually very not not naturally who i am and how i am but there was the sense of having to hold on right this this weird like, i don't
0: want to lose this this is so like, great i don't want
1: to lose it this is all i want this is all i need like a completely desperate yeah. like codependence with the moment with right. the reality and a kind of a, a real sense of like becoming somebody. And not that I was really becoming somebody, but in my head, there was this real, this real kind of like, what should I be? What should I look like? How should I present myself to the world? Hmm. Oh, I'm a healer now. Oh, I should be wiser. Oh, I should like, there was like this real semi unconscious, but really almost semi conscious, like of wanting to become more perfect, hmm. of wanting to become more serious, more, more, um, Less this mess that I am naturally, and and more appropriate in the French way and in the normal social way, and and right, it was like this agenda that I was beginning to have. And having more spiritual experiences, I remember having this weird thought, like, "Ooh, I should really create." It was like this really weird, like, "I should have a more serious meditation practice." Like, I was trying to. It was like compa- I was compartmentalizing to make more of a perfect life. Mm. Um. You know, and I, Amma was come came to Paris, and Amma comes to Paris once a year. And I wasn't a big Amma prep fan. It wasn't like, oh, let's go see, you know, because there's such a such a bhakti bhakti field around her. So many people who 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 are devoted to her and who really, ex, you know, experience her as the embodiment of the divine, of the feminine, and of the mother. Um, that wasn't that wasn't at all my 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 story. I I just wanted to go and get hugged. It seemed like a fun thing to do. You know, uh, and of course, you know, so I, I went into, she comes and she spends like a really long time and this, a huge compound that she comes into this, like, I don't know, space. And just as I, I came in and I walked into the space and like, I mean, I say it, it's funny to retell stories, but like I found myself on my knees wailing, like, with all of my heart, like, wailing into the, into the ground, mother burn me up.
0: Which was kind of unanticipated, right? You weren't a natural born whaler. You were just sort of like
1: I was a very natural born. I'm a natural born whaler. My family would cry at dinner time okay. because they would be speaking <laughs> about things. I am like a, when when someone reads poetry, I will I will wail. I am a natural born born whaler. Right, so so this wasn't totally it,
0: uncharacteristic of you. Too. It
1: wasn't totally uncharacteristic, but in I haven't been, but that moment in my life, it was an uncharacteristic for that moment in my life.
0: Yeah, it was unspo- it was spontaneous. You hadn't anticipated. It was
1: spontaneous and mother burned me up was not my language. Yeah, yeah. And burn me up for a person who was like containing it all to into, you know, was definitely not what I was going for. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I kept repeating it and wailing and wailing. And it was like, just, it wasn't stopping. It, like for, for a while I was just there on my knees. Mm. And as I was saying it, it was like autom- on automatic, like words were coming out. And I kept thinking, who's saying it and stop it. I don't mean it. Like there was a fear. <laughs> I'm like I don't mean it. I don't mean it. What the fuck does it mean? Like it was like a very strange experience, you know? Oh. Yes. So
0: Yeah. Carry on.
1: And and then kind of the evening unfolded and it was this beautiful field and you know how it is with the ama with the ama energy. Um and the entire night, there was this, this this beautiful table of jewelry. You know, they sell things all around. So yeah, there's bracelets like and prayers and all back. kinds of things. So, you know, you're all expanded. You might want to buy something. It's really good for business, I'm sure. Um, but there was this this table, and I kept circling it. There was, there was these beautiful objects. It's like jewelry and some other beads and... And there were these this earring there that I that I kept looking at this beautiful golden earring with like stuff hanging off of it and it was like I needed it so much I kept going back and then I was like I'm not gonna be a, a, a spiritual material I'm not gonna I'm gonna am not gonna consume but it, I kept being pulled back to the table so finally I asked the lady I said listen this earring where's the other one and I would really like to try them on and she said oh there is no other earring this isn't this this is from the altar of Kali. This came from Kali's statue in Amma's ashram. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like I haven't heard the name Kali before. I was a scholar of comparative religion. From, from a distance, at an arm's length, I absolutely have known about this dark Hindu goddess, and I wanted to have nothing to do with it. Like my, my Judeo-Christian kind of consciousness. Really, really nothing. I just the hair on my hands stood up, and I like bolted. I like got out of there. I didn't want to have anything to do with that table or anything mm. else. I didn't exactly get the connection between Amma and Kali either. Actually, that freaked me out. I remember. I, I had no idea. Um. And so you know that was the night of Devi Bhava where she blesses people and marries people and blesses babies and 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 you know what I'm talking about, yeah? Oh
0: yeah, I've done many times.
1: And so uh, then at the end of the night, what she does is she throws rose petals at people, on people. And so you get showered by roses, by Amma's rose petals. So and it was, I was just blissed out and, and like showered by, by the roses and made love, oh, what's really interesting also is, you know, when you hug Amma, it's not some kind of a lovely, peaceful hug. It's like, hug next, hug next. Yeah.
0: It's, you know, S- it's especially like if there's farewell. a huge crowd like in, in, in Paris. It goes. Was, she really, paces it according to the size. What was of the really
1: car. interesting is that she came. She she held me. Mm-hmm. She pulled me out. Mm-hmm. She pulled me back in. Mm-hmm. And people tried to push me through, and she like held on to me and she pulled me back in, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, she kind of held me for a while, and and then I moved through. And Rick. The morning, it's like morning five in the morning. I guess it's over six in the morning. I get into the car with a friend of mine. We get on a highway in the woods, and maybe ten minutes after I leave, um, Amma's darshan, a red car, and we're going at full speed. A red car comes out of its lane on a highway, and at full at full speed, rams into into our into our car. Hmm. You know, and, and it's like the traditional story: life in slow motion, everything slows down. Um, you know, you kind of have this weird life review, you know, you're going to die, you, you know, some kind of stuff, and, yeah, it was like instant answer, right, mother burn me up, here you have it, oh. you know, and I was, I was, I, I found myself, I was like on, on the ground, I didn't know if I was alive, I didn't know if I was broken open, I didn't, I had no sense of where I landed, but I, I felt, I felt that same energy that made my, my hair stand up. I felt it like move through me, and in every cell of my body, I knew that my life would never be the same. And then very, you know, miraculously, except for being, having hernias, you know, herniated discs and being dislocated, I was okay. Mm. You know, by miracle, I mean, everyone who came on that scene said, this is impossible, this is a miracle.
0: You had your seatbelt on, I presume?
1: Uh must have yeah and I uh, yeah. yeah so very quickly afterwards my life began to be you know I call it I began to dance with Kali um, v- immediately I could no longer work with people the healing practice has to shut down all of the uncertainty within me that I was containing all of my confusion all of my heartbreak all of my my kind of uh, fear was, I was being, I was like being shaken out, shaken up. It like, as if the, 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 the accident shook up everything that was held down in my cells, held down in my heart, held down, held down. Everything that was a no, not for me, not this, you know. And it all, it was all beginning to come up. So I was like shaking, sh- shaking through every day, right? Like dislocated completely overwhelmed, you know, like, I'm generally overwhelmed because I've experienced so much and, and, and so deeply very often, but this took it to a whole other level. Mm. So, that began kind of an identity crisis, right? Like, who am I now? What do I do? Everything I thought I knew, I don't know anymore. It was like, I felt, I, it was like a really not, not, a, a, not an unusual or extraordinary encounter with death you know where where everything that doesn't belong and everything that that isn't true kind of has this natural way of of shifting out yeah. right like there's and then within months maybe 3 months my father passed away and my father i mean it was like a tremendous tremendous shock and within a week my life in paris closed down everything i built everything i knew and I moved back to the States with my family and kind of another kind of stripping began where I became became a fatherless child. And, you know, it was interesting because it was there I was just being stripped and just beginning to reconfigure myself and just beginning to reconfigure my identity and just beginning to integrate something and kind of get a new sense of of who I am or should be or whatever. And then that got sh- that that got shaken up again, burned up. Right. And and, and when as my father died, it, it began to I began to feel this this tremendous deeper and deeper levels of pain and trauma surfacing in me and i think as my, when my father died what began to happen is that i began to connect to like uh, ancestral trauma my father was a holocaust survivor mm-hmm. and i think that was very deeply in my in my field and in my cells and i remember that period felt very much like 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 trauma that i couldn't tolerate that was beyond Anything was coming up and out. And I think that was happened because it was just recently I was shaken up. And then I was shaken up again. So it was like deeper and deeper stuff. And then just as I was beginning to reorient myself once again, <sighs> I began to move through a devastating divorce. Right? And for someone who is confessedly a drama queen, meaning <laughs> I don't just feel pain. I feel like hard-wrenching pain, right? Like everything feels like, like, you know, tremendous in my field, just like joy and love and ecstasy, right? Like I have this ecstasy, agony place in me that is very big and tremendous. I have to say that death was nothing compared to what I've experienced with the divorce because really the divorce shattered and threatened everything that I identified with. The perfect mother, the perfect wife. I was far from perfect, but like in my head, it was my story, the fairy tale. The fairy tale was so, such a profound part of my, of my kind of false self, right? And like a, but belonging to a particular kind of world that was comfortable and affluent and, and all of that being stripped all at once. And Rick, it was like, I said about being burning, it felt like that entire period felt like I was being burned alive, and in fact, so profoundly so that I remember having visions of like being stretched like in those in those um, middle ages torture cha- rack. Th- devices
0: yeah.
1: rack while being burned alive. One night, I had such an extreme, and this was all psycho-spiritual pain, right? The pain was so physically in my body I passed out hmm. from pain. And actually, that that night, the pain was so profound, and I had this like, I passed out from pain, and and for maybe like two three days, I couldn't feel anything at all. It was like my something in my brain kind of overloaded and blew blew out. It was like I blew out the my capacity to feel any more pain. And or maybe and you just was-
0: got rid of such a load of it that you you were given a a, a brief respite from having to process it. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And I just want to interject here. Um, you know, I told Irene that story about seeing Amma and saying, "Mother burned me up," and then having the car accident, and the, you know, divorce, and all this stuff. And she said, "Ooh, I hope she doesn't tell that story because I wouldn't want people to think that that happens to everybody who goes to see Amma, or that it happens to everybody who gets involved in spirituality." And it doesn't, oh, obviously.
1: It, I think I think that does actually. Not everyone who goes to see Amma. I think the the you know how the how the mystery unfolds itself yeah. through us and how life humbles us and how our, the process of spiritual maturation how that unfolds for each one of us is completely unique, and our relationship with teachers and different fields of 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 um of grace is completely unique to all of us. Mm-hmm. But I would have to say to argue or at least to to question whether that doesn't happen to everyone on a spiritual path.
0: Yeah, some to some degree level, and in different ways. Yes, I think it depends it on how quickly you move and yes. uh, how how artful the process is, you know, whether you're using a sort of a scalpel or a, a machete. Um, yeah, and
1: I, I realize now that I prayed for that, right? I yeah, wanted you said like, that. bring it on. I did. I said, "Bring it on," because so, somewhere that bhakti place in me, that that place in me where I just wanted to offer myself up, like from from the earliest of ages, right? Like that was my the only thing I really wanted. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was when I came into the field of ama, my deep yearning in my heart, the deep yearning in my heart that I was containing, couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And the deep yearning in my heart to offer myself up, to lay at her feet, to to be her instrument, right? To be burned up. Began to move through me, right? Even if consciously I couldn't choose it, right? I couldn't choose it. Some part of me chose it, yeah. and so that began to 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 kind of burn me up on a level that I think I consented to. I consented to, in the deepest part of my being. And so, what was very interesting about that period of 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 you know burning, was that. I began to have I mean the, the the pain was so extreme. The pain was so extreme I began to have visions and and it was like you know sometimes you can do something to help yourself. Somehow I knew in some in some wise place within me that there was nothing I could do to save myself from what was happening to me and my prayer began, my prayer life began to change from, I used to pray, Mother, please help me, help me, help me, like because I was in so much pain, and it seemed to be relentless. And I was a mother, it wasn't like I could just like be in my ecstatic pain, I was like I had to function, yeah. right? My, my my prayer life went from Mother, help me, save me, help me, to take me, mm-hmm. right? Like there was this this reorientation that happened of like, don't ever stop, until, until there's nothing else to burn. Mm-hmm. Right, like i I kind of that's all I began to want. It was like maybe a weird masochistic kind of thing, but it was like the places that I began to feel most intimate with life and most intimate with God were those places of radical heartbreak, mm-hmm. where I couldn't save myself, and God, in her wisdom, was kind enough to p- put me in a place where i couldn't I couldn't save myself, where I had nothing to hold on to, where where all of my old defense mechanisms and structures weren't working anymore. You know? I mean, I had this this one experience actually, and I wonder about it. I had a number of weird visions for, that that came when I had tremendous pain, right? But one of them, I was I was in a, in a supermarket like a public like, I don't know what you have up there, we have a public supermarket and I was uh, I, I passed by I passed by the the cra- the crabs or what are they called Lob- lobsters. lobsters
0: yeah
1: and Rick like I don't know what it was my heart just I cracked cracked open like spilled over and I it I was I, I kept moving mm-hmm. past the lobsters but all I could feel suddenly it was like the pain of the lobsters and then then it went it went into like the larger and larger fields of pain the pain of like the the society we live in of people having to survive of of war and genocide, and like it was like it was like in some weird way, it just like all of the suffering of the world began to flood through. Hmm. It started with the lobsters, but then it just kind of, and by the end, and like it was just like I went from the beginning of the va- aisle to the middle of the aisle. By the time I moved to the center of the aisle, uh, I was like. I was like I was being pierced from every direction. It was like, uh, and this was one of the very few times where my my physical world and the, my my spiritual vision merged, mm-hmm. and what I saw was gaping blood from all from f- gaping from me in all directions, and I actually couldn't tell if it was real or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I what I could th- what I thought is like, oh my God, I've become a wound of Christ, right? Like it was had this kind of weird Christological feeling experience, and I was like holding on. I couldn't see anything anymore. I was just like shaking and holding on to the aisle and like feeling this unbearable heartbreak and pain and then like as it's like I began to sort of feel o- orgasmic or an orgasm. So as I was standing there in like heartbreak and then like this weird energy was beginning to move through me and I couldn't see what was happening. Like tears rolling down my face like I had to make my way through the aisle, out of the store. Like in all of that continuing to move through me, I had to find m- enough like Human concentration to drive myself from the store to my house, so that I could lay down. And that was maybe one of the most horrifying, terrifying, ecstatic, beautiful experience um, that I had. That didn't I didn't really I don't know a parallel to that. But you know I didn't I didn't need to have my children that day. I, I just like I, I stopped. It was something happened that was so tremendous, which which I think began to. M- I don't know, I don't want to to analyze, but it was a profound experience for me. And those kind of experiences for me began to unfold in that period a few times. Um, And I almost wonder if that had to do with burning up karma or or, um, beginning to open me up in a way which I couldn't hold anything at bay anymore. Because I already had the language of of intimacy with life, of leaning in, the tantric kind of, you know, saying yes to everything. I was even, you know, way before I was even holding women's circles and saying, you know, you have to use everything, fear, uh, anger, despair, heartbreak, use it. It's all Shakti. Don't turn away from it. Like, I I got it. I got it in many different ways. But I don't really think I got it in in an embodied way until that began to kind of move through me in a more physical, direct way.
0: Well, you know, um, I was listening to some interview you did with Chitheads or one of those shows, and someone maybe it wasn't that one. Someone someone asked you, I don't know, what the what what your inspiration in life, what the purpose of your life, some such question like that, and you said, I just want to be used. I just want to be a servant of the divine to you know, as much as I can be, and um, you can correct me if if that's not quite the way you phrased it, but. Um, I can really relate to that, and I have a feeling, and have often felt that once one makes that has that intention and expresses that conviction,
1: that that prayer,
0: yeah, that that it's sort of like the divine says, okay, you know, we've got a live one here. Let's let's give her some juice. You know, I mean, let's this person is willing to be an instrument, and so therefore, let's transform this instrument as much as possible so she can be maximally. effective and and can really serve to her full capacity. Mm-hmm. And so you know once you've sort of signed up for that then it can it can become very intense.
1: Yeah, certainly it has been for me. I mean this whole year has been like walking on water. I and mean, I feel like everything everything I have to do just you might someone as well might might tell me you have to walk on water now and, and me saying what how how I can't do that that's not what I'm capable of. I will tell you that a year ago, you know, I mean, and, and this is all so new for me, all of this like being asked to do an interview, I mean, I always feel so phony and like, what the, you know, what does that mean, what do you have to... I will tell you that like a year ago, I was still on my knees, I wasn't sure what, what I have to offer. I came to the Science and Non-Duality Conference and, and gave my first kind of talk about Kali, which happened to be randomly on the exact... Four-year anniversary of my car accident, mm. but I remember at the time it was like, "Am I going to be? A, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a substitute teacher? How do I make a living? What? How do I? Who am I? I don't have you know like just in this like still total un, unraveling kind of in a way, right? And I I will tell you that I started I started saying this thing, which which actually you know I would say, Mother, use me or kill me. <laughs> use me or kill me. I I use me or kill me. And it was like, it became a mantra for a while. And um, I actually wrote an arbitrary for myself. I was so kind of, I was in so much pain and in so much sense, like of not being used. It was like so interesting of of feeling such deep separation and disconnection at that particular moment. And I like wrote out like the few things that I that I would be remembered for, and I saw like I just kind of saw through it, and I wrote this obituary, and, and then it I, it was like kind of this kind of uh, kind of completing. I felt like I needed to complete my life as it was before. Mm-hmm. There was I don't know why, but it's like sounds weird. I'm kind of, just kind of embarrassed by it actually, but um um and, and, and like the next day, I'm trying to see if I'm lying. Maybe the two days afterwards. I was at, at the ocean. I went uh, at night and was laying up, and I was looking at the stars. And then all of a sudden, it started raining sand on me. And I was like, "What the hell?" And I sat up, and a giant, like huge turtle, huge turtle, like I, I, I huge. Because sometimes they're, you know, what are they called? Um, they're all over Florida. I forget what this kind of turtles are. You know, yeah, there's turtles, but this was like huge. Like a mothership of a turtle, at my feet was digging a nest. Very cool. And I just and I sat there in like in like awe for for an hour, just looking at this at this mother turtle give birth. And I just thought that were, there was something that was like an in, initiation
0: for was me. was an omen of some kind, yeah.
1: An omen of some kind. Like she, it was a huge beat, She could have chosen anything. Like she came to my feet. Mm. Afterwards, very quickly, it, it seemed like overnight, you know. So I came back from sand. I wasn't sure what I was doing. And then the election happened. And this article that seemed to be like fully birthed, you know, in my head kind of came out and went globally viral all over the world. Kali
0: Takes America. I'm with
1: her. Kali Takes America. It kind of took America, kind of, you know, got translated into German and Russian. It was like such a crazy experience. And then. You know, Marion Williamson read it somehow, probably through you or s- somehow. And she, she called me up and asked me to come to Sister Giant. And I was like, you have the wrong person. I don't, who, <laughs> I have a nobody. What do you mean? And she was like, do not speak about yourself that way. You know, right? But like, I was, just, it's true. It's true. And so, and so somehow it like began opening doors. I began to be invited places. I began, I began to, you know, to t- this kind of different movement began to move through me. And it. I cannot safe, I cannot tell you that, oh, I, I, I feel connected to my purpose. In fact, I would say that's my deepest pain still, not knowing if I am in fact being used, yearning to help the world more. You know, that pain and confusion that we all feel right now in the collective is also very deeply in me. But I can tell you that somehow my yearning to be an instrument is a million times clearer than it was. And it was so perfectly clear already, it's like that yearning is becoming deeper and deeper. I don't know if, I, if, if I'm actually being used, but I can tell you it's, it's, it's like the, the one prayer in my heart. You know? Well, you know? I think that people see
0: that in you, or else, or else the fact that you are supposed to be used causes the Divine to to inspire people who are able to connect you with a larger audience to do so, if that was one. Like I, I kind of immediately got an impulse, um, Marion Williamson did, um, Zion, Maurizio of the Sand Conference, they've got your moderating panels this year and all kinds of stuff. So people see in you the, you know, uh, the ability and the capacity and the, the spiritual maturity to um, be a, an important contributor. Um, oh, thank you. Know, you. Yeah. I
1: hope that that's true.
0: It's it's really obvious. And and reading any. And of you know your you stuff, know what you else is
1: happening, which I think is actually really I don't know what to do with that either. And I think that's how it works, right? Like that's actually how life works. Mm-hmm. We're given signs. We're given if we listen deeply enough, it doesn't matter what the prayer in our heart is. If we if we are earnest enough and we are able to listen, just in that in that place. Right, there's a communication that happens with life directly, right, yeah. between between our us and 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 her. Um, but I, I'll tell you something particularly interesting. So, I, I've had some profound teachers who are not very popular. In fact, people who I really mo- mostly worked with, who've shaped me and profoundly transfig, you know, mm-hmm. who are my teachers and mentors, are are not known completely. You know, Jason, Barbara, so many people. Right, my my, my teacher my, Lori Keen. Um, so a number of people who who may be beginning to be known but not really, but in the popular in the dominant culture, the people that I felt most kind of affinity with would be uh, Andrew Hardy, mm-hmm. Mira by Star mm-hmm. um, um, I just. Mean, Well, Charles, Charles, yeah, Charles is Charles is great. But like, I wouldn't, you know, I I always loved his work, but I didn't know his work so much actually. Um, for a while, I'm just trying to think. Um, well, let's start with those two because that's who I'm. Adam, Adam, Adam Adam Baco, for example, mm -hmm. right? Matthew Fox. uh, All of whom
0: I've interviewed. If people want to look up these names.
1: (laughs) Yes. Cynthia Bourgeau, you know, I was hearing about since I was in divinity school, like just, just people who, so, but what was, what's what's really particularly interesting is that those are the people, the people that I felt most connected to began reaching out to me. Mm. They were the ones posting my articles. You know, Andrew Harvey called me on the phone, Carolyn Baker, you know, like, I was like, who is this? He was like, this is, Andrew, darling. And I was like, oh, and I cried. I just wailed at him for like 15 minutes. And I said, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to say. And he said, don't worry, never stop crying. This is the best conversation I've ever had. You know, but like, what's amazing, and like, before I read, before I wrote Kali Takes America, um, I, I read Mirror by Star's Dark Night of the Translation of Dark Night of the Soul. But it's not just a translation. It's also like her unique transmission of her interpretation of the Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. And that's Me, I feel like largely the article emerged from it, and then she called me and and helped me, supports me, and mentors. There's this way in which people who were dearest heart, just like these people out there who were like celebrity spiritual teachers who touched my heart on the inside, reached out to me on the outside.
0: Yeah. Well, that I mean, article I'm, struck a chord. I mean, to,
1: I'm speaking to you. Like a few months ago, I was watching you on the YouTube. <laughs> like, how is this happening?
0: Well, I hope you won't stop. Um, <laughs> um, and I'm just, you know, like we're all bo- we're all bozos on this bus. Remember? I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, just because someone gets known because they have some sort of public audience or something, doesn't mean there's anything particularly remarkable about them. Of course not. Um, of course. You know, we all know that, it's but it's like, still kind know, of crazy. Just, yeah.
1: You know, I mean Marion Williamson calling you is a little bit out incredible and like she is such an incredible actually example. I feel like for all the talk for all the talk of of uniting spiritual and, polit- and 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 human our spiritual and human lives, right? All the talk of bridging and incarnating and integrating and embodying, she is the only spiritual teacher and author who actually ran for political office.
0: Yeah, it's true. Well, right? John, John Hagelin did too. He ran for president. Oh, that's and, right. Yeah.
1: Well, but still, so like the only person to actually put her m- mouth money where yeah, her uh, mouth like, is.
0: Yeah, right. Like,
1: it's kind of that quite was impressive.
0: Quick. So, anyway, so, what, uh, what do you think it was about the Kali article that struck such a chord? I mean, what did you say in that article, and that really kind of lit up everybody's radar?
1: That's such a good question. Well, I think that it just came out at the right time because the everyone was shocked. There was like a collective. So a lot of people, I think after I read the article, were like, oh, you think Trump is Kali? And I kept saying, no, 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 I don't think Trump is Kali at all. The quality, this, the the archetype of Kali that I saw emerging through Trump winning the election was actually through the complete shattering of our narratives. It was like such a tremendous shock for everyone. I think it was shock for Trump himself. <laughs> he got elected to become president. No one expected it. Yeah. It kind of it was a great disillusionment with our systems, with democracy. You know, like it was a great dis- disillusionment. And actually, that's the function for me of the process of spiritual maturation and of what uh, holy darkness is all about. It shocks us into into reality. It it takes away our misconceptions, our self deceptions it is incredibly disappointing it like right like all of those ways in which we puff ourselves up and tell ourselves the stories and know things and because you know our certain have certainties right it comes and it shakes it all up and it leaves us in in this place where life really happens in the in the uncertainty of it all in this groundless nature of reality and so so i think what happened was that everyone felt that kind of a. Uh, shattering of illusions that happened. I'm not saying there's something great about Trump winning the election, I'm just saying it was such a surprise, it was such a disruption, it is, was such a disruption to the, to the orders of things that I think there was a little tiny opening, you know, that began to let more more real feelings come through and so I think me naming that connected with people more than anything, and then the way that maybe I wove in a little bit of pop culture with the passing of Leonard Cohen that happened around that time as well, you know, and he he had this album called You Want It Darker. When he wrote the song, when people heard the song, all the reviews of the album sounded had some version of, oh, Leonard Cohen, he has given up, he's depressed. But really what he was saying with that album was that no matter, it was almost like a prophetic Song he was saying, no matter how dark it gets, I am ready he nay he I am willing I am a take me, use me. It was like an offering an offering of that part of us he says he says there's something in the human soul that yearns to serve when the emergency has become when the emergency has become articulate mm. and I think. In a way, we are living in this time with with climate change and with the political realities of the day where the emergency has become articulate, right? And there's something in a way in which I think I touched it and and it got triggered, touched in all of our hearts, collectively.
0: I was thinking about that, you know, I often think, I've kind of felt since the 70s that we're on the brink of some really dramatic changes in the world. Yes. And I've read books about this, as I'm sure we all have. Um, there was one real interesting book by a, name, a lady named Moira Timms, which was called Prophecies and Predictions, Everyone's Guide to the Coming Changes. And she correlated all, mm-hmm. so all the ancient prophecies from way back from Egypt on through with mm-hmm. things that have actually happened, and then mm-hmm. took, took more of the prophecies to project what will happen if the sort of track record continues in terms of the veracity of these prophecies. But in any case, you think back, you know, the Civil War, World War I, the Depression, World War 2 and you think, are we really in such dire times, compared to all these other times? I mean, what is what is so... And yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I, I say that's such a great point, and actually there is a book, I forget what it's called, recently. Who, with the with the gentleman saying, actually, we live in the best times that we've ever had. There's less in suffering many, yeah, yeah. now than than at any other time in human history. Yeah, so, yeah, less, so less less epidemics, less all
0: kinds of things, exactly. less starvation, less poverty. Right. It's gotten gotten better it's, in many respects.
1: So yes, that on on one level, that that's interesting. It's mm-hmm. very interesting, especially interesting if interesting if true. Mm-hmm um and someone somewhere is always living through an, uh, an apocalypse there is genocide there sure. is war you know uh
0: sexual slavery tons of that
1: children exactly yeah. i mean there's what human trafficking there's such mm-hmm. tremendous amount of suffering on this planet yeah. such tremendous amount of separation and cruelty violence and i don't want to to get into I don't want to get into some kind of an idea that, yes, you know, this is the end of the world and such things, because it doesn't actually matter, does it? It doesn't actually matter whether the world is going to end or not, because somewhere the world is always ending. And every moment that arises in some way is also a death. It's like to live fully and to live deeply, we have to be in, in such intimate relationship with death. But what is different about this moment is that we, ha- our species, has never threatened its own continuation, continuation of this planet, right. Right. because this planet might be fine, no matter what we might be able to do to it. But really, we are threatening everything living on this planet and our own species. So in that way, since the development of the atomic bomb, I guess mm-hmm. this is a new, a new uh, level of engagement with our, yeah, with our, um, with our. Planet, and um, regardless of what happens to the planet, and you know, I, ha- I have to also tell you, and I, I, don't, I don't know how I don't talk about that so much, but I began. So again, I'm not a Hindu scholar. I didn't know very much about Kali. I began to be interested in Kali after after I felt her emerge in my life, and I began her emerge in my in my heart. You know. Uh, but very different kinds of archetypes of Kali began to to give me like visitations.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, let me uh, interject a question somebody asked, and then let me have you elaborate on that. Mark Peters from Santa Clara, California, asked, "Can you share how you've come to interpret the iconography of Kali in your own life?" So that's a good segue into what you're about to say. A, that's
1: a that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. And and in general, the iconography of Kali is a great question. But I just want to say that there's all these different other forms of, of the dark feminine that began kind of emerging and in this weird way like where i would see something and be like what is that and then find out that that's actually a, a, a one of the expressions of kali or or everywhere i go in different cities I'll, i i get guided to icons of the black madonna just like really interesting ways in which in my life it just like
0: uh, i was thinking about this and i've heard you you know in several lectures and reading a bunch of your articles talking about the dark feminine um, it almost seems a little sexist. Why should just the feminine be dark? Is there a dark masculine? Uh, of is there course. is there a bright feminine? I mean, why why lay all the darkness on the feminine? <laughs>
1: well, I mean, that's such a great question. First, I want to say is that in a way, it's not really feminine, masculine at all. For me, Kali, that that quality of reality is beyond masculine and feminine. But that the like the great mystery has a feminine kind of essence to it somehow right like it's it pervades it pervades and so yes it's seen as feminine and there's also something about the feminine that's naturally dark i mean the womb is naturally dark the yoni i mean it's dark, the earth, the damp, dark earth from which which gives birth to everything, well, certainly our civilization. Like it's it's darkness and the feminine is very interconnected. The the feminine the, the dark feminine is the full feminine. I mean, Alan Watts used to start his lectures about Kali by by an anecdote of an astronaut going up in space and then coming back and everyone saying so you went up there what is god like and him coming back and saying she's black <laughs>
0: yeah
1: right because the, the that holding environment of the, that that darkness of space the way it holds our planet the way it holds everything so there is a very strong association between darkness and the feminine mm-hmm. and kali there's so many ways of, of speaking about Kali, and I, I would, you know, whatever I say will be a blasphemy to, to somebody. I, I have a very particular kind of feeling and interpretation about it, so please don't listen to me. This is just Vera, Vera stuff. So, for me, that qu- that quality of reality that is, it's like, okay when you think of the light feminine, let's say in, in the case of Mary, right, like the illuminated, beautiful virgin that gives birth to, to Christ, it's like such a comforting image. And maybe as a child or it's, it's an image that invites you into the spiritual life. It says, yes, yes, you suffer. We all my children suffer. I, I'm with you. I'm with you in your suffering. I will hold you, you know, call out to me and I will be there. And, and it's an inviting image that kind of first pulls us into the spiritual life, maybe. And it's important because that there's some kind of a majesty, a mystery, a, a magnetism, erotic almost kind of a calling that I think the feminine aspect of reality kind of calls to us, like that that our hearts hear and we want to respond, right? And very often it's like that, that yearning for illumination, that yearning for, for comfort and connection and devotion somehow. But as we mature, there almost is this kind of a, it seems to be universal, and I say that's universal because in every culture, in every spiritual lineage, we hear stories of what St. John of the Cross, for example, would would call the dark night of the soul, In in, in other traditions this would be the death before you die, but some kind of a period of deep crisis which is necessary for spiritual maturation mm-hmm. and for the eventual, eventual process of union with the Divine. And so it seems to me that the entry into that process, into that process, and what I mean by that is that process of direct relationship with reality, not through a teacher, not through a idea, not through a book, not through a concept, but direct relationship with reality, to me that's what the dark feminine is, it's like the, in the it's that quality of reality that initiates us into union with the divine. Yeah. And and necessarily when you think of Kali and the forms of the dark feminine in the Hindu tradition, Kali, Ch- 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 Chinamasta, I don't know, Dumavati, well not Dumavati, but Kali, Chinamasta in in the Chamunda, right, this, this great, uh, thin, emaciated, old Kali with weapons, she has ten hands and all the weapons of war, right? And, and in the in the Buddhist tradition we have uh, the great Dharma protectresses right, they are the great emanations of the dark feminine too like the Dalai Lama has his own personal Kali expression of Kali and she's very fierce and, and there's Ekajati who is the protectress of Dzogchen they are not for the faint of heart they're fierce, they're surrounded by fire they're surrounded by clouds of smoke because the smoke has to obscure the mind like in the Christian tradition, the cloud of unknowing, we have to enter the crowd of unknowing where our mind and our sense of self, it all gets clouded so that we can begin to have union with the divine. And those weapons, those weapons, it's because that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like to make contact with the real. It's, it's not fun. It's not cute. It's not lovely. It strips you to the bone. It breaks your heart. It like cuts through illusion it is for me the spiritual process is a process of deep disappointment jason shulman says right everyone thinks spirituality is about light love you know light and it is but it is also a process of becoming disenchanted with our illusions right and something has to do that and that will never be comfortable and it also once that will never be comfortable and it is the ultimate comfort as well because then there is nothing that you have to save yourself from anymore. You know that wherever it is that you find yourself, there the mother is already holding you. Because you know that there is nothing that you're willing to turn away from any longer and that, that the mother is there holding it all with you. Tell me, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I'm just sort over- of thinking.
0: I mean, tracing my own history of learning to meditate in the 60s when I was a teenager. And at first, it was all just infusion of bliss and greater strength and energy, and so on, because I had so bottomed out at that point, and uh, but then eventually, over the years and decades, some real deep stuff had to be dealt with, and it wasn't pleasant and you know that still goes on in my life and even though there's still the infusion of, of bliss and and divine energy, there's also the sort of ringing out of anything that ultimately doesn't belong there, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and gurus will behave that way with people too. For instance, for instance, Amma, you know, at first it'll be all sort of love and hugs and, you know, a wonderful scene. And then, you know, if you really get want to get close, then she starts really, you know, becoming more of the Kali figure and, and really knocking it out of you. So that seems to be a sort of a, what is it, an archetype of, of the spiritual path of, you know, first it's all sort of Inspiration and beauty, and then you really got to go through it. But I think that there might be a final stage in the archetype, which is that you finally actually do, break, you know, process all this stuff and kind of step out into the sunshine again. And maybe union, yeah, union, and, sure. and so it's not always going to be like the stage of suffering and having your heart ripped apart and and this oh and that. But, uh,
1: please understand i'm not saying that that it's always going to yeah, be i mean that. if i
0: talk to you in 10 or 20 years you can well, be singing a very different song i am
1: focusing on a very very particular part of the spiritual narrative yeah. actually it's a very very limited and particular part it's where i where i feel and a resonance
0: mm-hmm. and uh, a very important part and one that has been it's where under the rug a lot there's a, a great
1: lot. gap I think there's a gap in our collective pop spiritual culture there. Mm -hmm. We're unwilling to look at the shadow. We're unwilling to mature, Mm -hmm. right? I think this is emerging. It's an emergent quality right now. This is why I think, actually, uh, you asked why about the article. I think it's emerging. It's not like Vera decided to write an article. It's like there's actually a particular archetype that's emerging right now, and it's emerging collectively, Right. right? We are going to be faced with a deep, 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 reckoning of our collective karma on this planet. That is just a fact.
0: Yeah.
1: Right now it's just beginning and I think that in the same way as the, the power of the initiation of Kali, that power of being stripped down to only what's real, and that's going to be happening for us collectively because it must, because this is what we need on a deeper sense as humanity. There needs to be a kind of a crucifixion that we enter.
0: Yeah, Here's a quote from Andrew Harvey that I think you had in one of your articles. He said, in preparation for the birth of the the divine, the entire human race is now going through a global dark night, which will result in a new humanity that has been humbled and chastened by tragedy, so that it may open completely to the mystery of divine grace. There will be no resurrection of an embodied divine humanity without a systematic, perfectly organized, brutally complete crucifixion of everything in us that keeps us addicted to the systems of illusion that are now rapidly destroying everything."
1: I mean, Andrew Harvey is such a prophet, (laughs) if you need need to know anything about anything. You know, truly, and I I believe that, I felt that to be true, when I saw Kali on the top of the Empire State Building, to me that was the sign of the time. Mm Um, and and it's, not a, it's not about fear-mongering or us being afraid or not afraid. It's about that quality that I think, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we get to face... You know, I say, throw, we, we get to throw things up against death.
0: Yeah.
1: Or we get to be thrown up against death, where we begin to see what's really important and where we can yield into it, where we stop splitting life and saying, I can only have these experiences, and only those experiences are spiritual or and good, but those other experiences not so interested. I want to keep them at bay. That's for other stupid, uneducated, uninteresting, unspiritual people, right? Like when, when the spiritual life begins to be a defense, when a, a kind of a cloak of protection, that's where we have to ask ourselves, is that really what is that really what we yearn for? Because I think there is a deep collecting, collective yearning for the real, that's what we really most want. Even if it takes a burning up, even if it takes deep suffering, I think that in the heart of hearts we're all willing to offer it all up just so that we can have the taste.
0: And I think that there's something real valuable in this conversation and what you've been putting out there with your articles, which is that if a person doesn't know why this is happening to them, either individually or, or to the world, to the collectively, it's a whole lot worse than if you realize, you know, I'm, I'm going there's a catharsis taking place here, and I'm, I'm just going to sort of see it through and, and you know feel deeply into it and so on. Something good is happening ultimately. You know, like if the kid is having his ears scrubbed by his mother and he he thinks his mother hates him and he, and she's punishing him, that's different than if he realizes my mother loves me and I must have dirt behind my ears and I'll just tolerate this. Yeah.
1: I mean this is such a such a such a vaster conversation, really important. We should have started with that actually. But yeah, first yeah, let's of keep all, going. the first the first spiritual truth, right? Like the Buddha mm-hmm. Said is that life is full of suffering right, so there, there's a way in which we have to begin to have the right relationship with suffering not as a punishment for something that we did that was bad or a karmic retribution mm. or or something that's unique to me and mine but something that is universal yeah. something uh, something that is afflicting that is a condition for incarnation suffering is the condition for incarnation on this planet in this in this shape of 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 imperfect of imperfection that is human so there will always be suffering there's nothing special about suffering and if anything suffering suffering is a great tool of of Union, connection, right? Like knowing that I suffer and you suffer and you are a bozo and I am a bozo and you are a holy mess and I am a holy mess and there's no way of saving myself from that. I will, most likely we will have disease, we will be suffering, we will suffer from being away from our loved ones, from not knowing what our purpose is, from being away from the divine, from from being subject to climate change and to our loved ones dying. We will be subject to a number of natural suffering which we cannot escape. Ac- accepting that is vital Yeah. for That's... for for a beginning of the spiritual life. Then there's also a way in which I think there's something about suffering and extreme suffering that also has a potential to, to purify, and I am not into purification. I am into the murk and the mess. I'm not into purification at all, but it seems to me that there is a function of suffering that seems to to bring us towards union to to make us when we can no longer protect ourselves to make us yield to the divine yeah right there is something about it when i suffer and i suffer a lot and relentlessly and you know sometimes for you know silly things sometimes in my like weird spiritual ecstasy uh, you know but but there is something about the movement of like moving towards that suffering and allowing it to, to have its way with me that feels very different than when I when I keep it at bay. And I don't think that's the only way. I think, especially for those of us who have a lot of trauma in our system, it's so important not to blow ourselves out, to be so gentle and so kind and so tender-hearted with the ways in which we suffer, mm. you know, and to remember that however suffering arises, in our life it's not an abomination yeah. it's well, not an abomination it's also here. not something we need to recy- recycle and glorify no when you do look through through every tradition there is something akin to the divine itself breaking itself open offering itself being crucified something you know that the brokenness is an inherent part not only of the human life but almost of the divine life itself
0: yeah couple of thoughts. One is, God is not a masochist. I mean, he, he or she doesn't inflict suffering to get get his yah yas out. <laughs> it's, uh, there's an evolutionary imperative in the universe, I think, and being sort of constricted and calcified in a limited perspective, like you were saying in Paris, and you had it all together, everything's cozy, everything's right, but you needed to be broken out of that to move on to something bigger. So there's that. Also, Kali is not a demon. Kali is a killer of demons, and exactly, uh, you know,
1: she's the slayer of demons. And there's a lot of misconception in the in the in the Western world about Kali. She's terrifying. I mean, I, as you can tell, my own reaction to to the very concept of you know yeah,
0: I ran away was I ran
1: ran ran out screaming. <laughs> you know, actually, in in the Judeo Christian tradition, if you if you remember well, the associations with God is awe and fear. Yeah. God appears in the same way as Kali is like clouds and smoke, God appears as a pillar of fire and as a cloud. So, and, and of course that part of God in the Jewish tradition is seen as the Shekhinah, as the feminine aspect of the divine too, so I find that interesting. But that, that natural fear we have of being naked before the divine. Mm-hmm. I think is a necessary and very important function of Kali coming in I mean like being fear has an important function Kali is terrifying and it's important for us to get in touch with our fears so that we're not containing them right like she is she lets it all surface and she says you can't turn away from that either that too is my child there's nothing which I will which I will exile so to speak mm-hmm the way in which she appears actually it's so interesting in one of the tantra in one of the tantric texts so there is a sto- really cool story where you know you know this that tr- the, in the hindu tradition there is the divine masculine which is shiva and the divine feminine with it which is shakti and so Shakti, the Divine Feminine, incarnates as Sati, and then Shiva and Sati have this great love, this great love affair, and then the Sati is the first incarnation of the Divine Feminine in the stories of kind of Hindu pantheon. And in the story, Sati's father isn't so cool about Sati marrying Shiva because Shiva is like the Lord of the Dead. He has dreadlocks. He's horrifying. He hangs out in cemeteries. He puts ashes all over his face. That's like so inappropriate. <laughs> Her father is like not having any of it, um, and so he has this great uh, sacrifice to the god to, to, to God Agni planned, and he doesn't want Shiva around his his very important flock of. Of uh, socially advanced gods, and so he does not invite invite them to the sacrifice, and uh, and Sati gets extremely angry because she's disrespected. The feminine is disrespected here. Sally Kempton, I think, tells the story. it Must be where I got where I, I got this actually. Um, And so Sati is disrespected and she begins to be very, very angry and she wants to go to her father to express her her anger and Shiva says, no, you will not go anywhere. And now she's disrespected twice by her father and then by her husband. And in the text, uh, what happens is that she turns into a ferocious, fearsome, black goddess. In one of the stories she turns into 10 goddesses one of whom is black and ferocious but in in this one story she like she turns into this great terrifying goddess and Shiva himself becomes terrified and he says who are you and what have you done to my beloved sati and she says shiva don't you recognize me this is my true form i only make myself Convenient and beautiful so that you can take pleasure in it, but you will not disrespect me. And then she goes off and she, you know, throws herself in her father's fire. And then it's like a great drama that continues afterwards. But that's to say that that that's so beautiful. Even the God of death himself was terrified in the face of pure reality. Pure reality is meant to be so terrifying that it strips us to only what is real. And I really love that. And I and I to me that's what Kali does. She cuts through all the bull. And for me, I don't know what it's like for other people, you had to take everything out of my cold dead hands. There's no part of me that would have been like, here. There was something like a grace that needed to come through. I mean, this was fear's grace, you know. But, but there was a grace in this kind of uh, being faced with what's that was what was most terrifying.
0: Yeah. Do you find that having been through so many waves of this process now? That you are kind of used to the routine and you uh, relinquish the grip more willingly, or are you, still, are you still being wrestled with on a regular basis?
1: Oh, I wrestle. I wrestle to the death every single time, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't surrender. I can't feel my heart sometimes. It's always, always, always a struggle. Also, I'm not in that really. I'm not in that vulnerable place that I was for such a for for, for a few years mm. anymore right and I really was it wasn't like I needed to try to surrender it was just like what was you know I didn't there was just this particular kind of a an opening that was in me as I was moving through that, you know, and I think that happens for all of us when we just lose somebody or when we go through difficulty. We, you know, Pema Chodron in her book When Things Fall Apart writes a lot mm-hmm. about that. There's a particular intimacy with life that happens. Um, so there was nothing unusual about that. You know, we all experience that. But I think at this moment I feel like I always pray. To surrender that's always my prayer I pray to to keep being polished right the Sufis say so that the mirror of my heart keeps being polished by joy and by suffering but whatever God wants of me by whatever God wants to give me I think I trust more and more that whatever appears is the instrument of my spiritual process right is what I need most to keep healing and awakening
0: which is why it's appearing There was a thought I was having a few minutes ago, and what we've just discussed a moment ago brought me back to it, which is that you know the the surface of the ocean is always going to be turbulent. That's the way the surface of an ocean is, and if that's all you know is the surface of the ocean, then then the feeling is going to be it's all turbulence. There's nothing but turbulence. Um, But if you somehow accustom yourself to having access to the depth of the ocean at the same time, and if that becomes abiding, then the turbulence is much more tolerable, and I think that spiritual practice and spiritual maturity do that exactly yeah
1: what's really also interesting about that play and what you named so so profoundly, I mean that's literally what Shiva and Shakti is, what Shiva and Kali is. Shiva is all pervading, abiding, all silence and the, the sort of the, we get we are permeated with with all abiding consciousness, mm-hmm. right and shakti is the play of life is is like the the movement of life is everything that arises and 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 falls away and so you know actually shiva without shakti is just shava which is a corpse mm. and so the the ways in which those two come together in us and the ways in which those meet in us the ways in which we we are both able to Become silent, right? Like make a relationship with that deep quietness. And the ways in which then we allow ourselves to be penetrated by that in the dance of life, right? I think that cooks us very, very profoundly.
0: Yeah. And as you know, you know, there are millions of people in the world, billions who um, are buffeted by by the insanity of the world without necessarily having recourse to that deep silence, and it's very difficult for them, now, you know It's
1: very difficult for me. For you too. It's very difficult for me, I mean
0: But you do have recourse to deeper silence. You have an advantage that many people don't have, do you not?
1: I, I really wouldn't know how to compare, but I do know that um, it's really so. I've had experiences, like yeah. peak experiences, which uh, uh, I wouldn't. I, I I feel like I've had experiences of emptiness, which is kind of. I'm not sure if that, that's the same. But it's only very recent for me that I feel like I've been dropping into, or had any experiences with like deeper silence. Very very recent. Okay. It it never, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, but even if you, I mean, I'm sure that that will grow. It grow, It's always growing for all of us. But at least you have, not the experience. I'm sure you do have plenty of experience. At least you have the intellectual understanding that there's a deeper mechanics to this, you know, drama that we see playing out. That there's, you know, something very fundamental taking place, and that's that's a solace in and of itself.
1: Yes, um, and as you're, say- as you're speaking, I'm also thinking that I think my way, or like my proclivity, um, and maybe the way of the feminine, is a little bit towards a bit of a different paradigm where it's like you're not trying to counter chaos with silence, mm-hmm. but rather there's a way in which then the pain and the chaos of it becomes the medicine. I just uh, posted on Facebook. I wish I had it in front of me, something from Naropa, and he says, "Actually, I will. I will find it and I'll read it because I think it's pretty good." Because that 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 kind of reorients it just a little bit, so that it's not like, "Oh, the silence versus all the mess," right?
0: Yeah.
1: But let me just tell you what it is. I read it and I just thought this is so so good. He says, "The emotions." Are the great wisdom. Like a jungle fire they are the yogi's helpers. How can there be staying or going? What meditation is there by fleeing to a hermitage? So that there isn't this kind of dichotomy that we set up, silence versus the pain and suffering of the world, but that somehow it's like this deep relationship that we begin to, to grow to everything that, that is here, that is us that is within us, that is reality, as much to our deep, the deep quality of, who we, of our essence in silence as to, to this dance of the holy, right? The holy and the broken. So that maybe it's not always, you know, like, you, do I have access to silence? Well, first of all, I don't know that that's actually true. I feel like more and more I just drop in and feel everything that's there and it doesn't necessarily feel very silent for me. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. But sometimes in my deepest of dramas, where I am like on my knees wailing, you know, and and where I'm confused and overwhelmed and, you know, not at all in those awake quote-unquote states, that somehow in just moving through that, I meet a deeper calm than I ever knew.
0: That's a key point, Um, you know, there is kind of a a calm after the storm, um, it's like once you have processed a whole batch of stuff that needed to be processed, then you're able to rest in a deeper calm, a deeper silence. Uh, that the, that that buried stuff was obscuring or blocking in your experience. Mm. That does that make sense? Does that resonate?
1: I think that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I
0: ahead. just when,
1: when as I'm saying, I just realize you know it's like there's a number of models of kind of of relationship with reality, and I think that there's always sort of a feeling in me that it's not just arriving in some kind of a state, right? Mm-hmm. Or some kind of a place. That there's a weird, weird, vaster process taking place. And that it's like, yes, our nature and who we are and all of this stuff that happens, but then there's a, a kind of emergence, a co-emergence with the divine, right? Like Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, used to say, union differentiates, right? And it's such like there's a sense in which rather than becoming, you know, like we imagine less specific or less individual, somehow as we become more, just naturally move towards more and more union with the divine, we actually also become... I'm I'm now a little bit lost actually. I think I know where where you're going going. with
0: this, and I I agree with that. that.
1: There's it's not like arriving to some kind of place, and now I'm awake, and now I'm enlightened, and now I feel the silence and great, right? Like that there's like a way in which life is actually constantly trying to move through it. Sometimes I feel like an orifice, and actually sometimes I feel like everything is an orifice. It's like, 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 like. And and this pulsing of life and it's relentless and it's like, yes, how to become the the orifice willingly and un you know, and relentlessly. And it's like somehow in that there is this co-emergence that happens, new things. Like it's almost like life is evolving or God is evolving. Like there's this real kind of a process that's more than just I've arrived in an awakened state. Yeah. Or at least that's how it seems from where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is far from anything awake in any possible way, so let 's just be clear about that.
0: <laughs> well, look at some of these characters whom we admire as being fairly awake or profoundly awake, somebody like Ama, for instance. there is a very deep silence, and sometimes she describes her experience as being just like nothing is happening and and um, you know everything is is just the divine and. And, and so on, but then there's, you know, in terms of the manifest expression of that, there's this incredibly dynamic, charismatic personality which is not plain vanilla in any way, shape or form, but has actually become more vivid, more animated, more uh, full of of interesting qualities than than the average person by far. Um, well,
1: I mean, I know that for me, I mean, and I have, I have very, very particular, I think, sensibility. So I, am not, you know, I don't want to say that this is what it is, just what it is for me. It's like what I most value in the people who I considered my men, consider my mentors, yeah. right? Both as like these more removed mentors, like like Reb Zalman, who I didn't have a very deep personal relationship with, but I've met and worked with, and 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 uh, Sh- and Jason Schulman, is that is that like. How extremely and profoundly human and imperfect they
0: are. Yeah.
1: Right. Like there was never any. There's never any pretense or exaggeration or actually even like, you know, that there that there is like the willingness to be completely themselves. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in like Cynthia Bourgeau and all of these really wonderful, wonderful teachers. It's like the, the, they're just so completely themselves. They're like letting their freak flag. Or, or their their imperfect flag, not freak flag, actually, but the flag of imperfection, fly high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I really feel like that's that place of self disclosure as a human being is really, really, really important for all of us, so that we get out of the of the. A friend of mine just sent me something yesterday of like the sh- the, the 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 totalitarian chains of shame, and. And uh, you know, separation from, from those very human, beautiful parts of ourselves. Like the more we disclose our humanity to each other, the more permission we all have. Yeah. To be who we are, and to allow the and, and to to let people in our spiritual lives also just to be imperfect human beings, living imperfect human lives. You know, like there's there's such mercy in that, such forgiveness for our for our, for our humanity.
0: Yeah. I think the point that we're circling around here, it's it's a valuable point where we're kind of nailing it, but it's it's just that there's, um, you know, my friend Craig Holliday wrote a book called Fully Human, Fully Divine, and um, there's tendencies in the spiritual community, uh, at least certain non-dual facets of the spiritual community, to um, de-emphasize the human part and you know to to say things like, "It's all a story," or it's, "Or there's, o- exactly there's only the, this and that kind of thing." That's the
1: same place, which tends towards the transcendent, masculine, upward movement. Right. Actually, right. And like the so so in some way, they, there's a really strong color correlation. Yeah. Between and the and and so now it's only beginning, right? Like it's beginning to integrate. It's beginning. We beginning the in right. Like there's the evolutionary and the involutionary movement.
0: Right. And so the point I've been trying to get at here is that we should aspire for or appreciate the value of or the necessity of full blast on both engines, you know, um, and that's why I'm trying to bring in this silence thing, not to overemphasize it or to, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to use it as a place to hide out from the humanity, but that we can sort of go full blast in, 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 and there we're going to have a much bigger package than, than if there's any kind of imbalance between the two. Definitely. Yeah.
1: I, I, I myself tend to to, and I, I think this is where my, I suspect, I suspect that because I w- went so full on into this one direction, you know, uh, isn't it called tamas in? in is the
0: d- uh, the dullness, the hiding quality. And
1: the darkness also. Right. Like Kali is very tamasic. Yeah. So I went so deeply into this one way of perceiving tantra is very tamasic, right? Like there's this. So because I went I swung so much in this one direction mm-hmm. my sense is that as I continue growing and healing there will be more of a balancing that will continue emerging because that's what I feel is actually happening for me now
0: Yeah and that happens for all of us and um you know to think that awakening is some kind of monolithic uh you know place we arrive where all the various pieces and facets of our personality and our body and our emotions and our intellect and all the our senses and all this stuff have come in complete perfect alignment as, as our consciousness awakens is very unrealistic and it's you ridiculous you, know, you can't find examples ridiculous.
1: of it it's it's ridiculous I actually really 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 have no interest in actually the terms awakening enlightenment all of those things it, it's somehow insulting right like these kinds of idealized images actually insulting to my heart and I think, I think, uh, you know, it's so passé. It's so over. If if I if I have any sense of what's to come, I think more and more real, more and more grounded, more and more embodied, more and more imperfect, um, is is sort of what what we're going to be seeing on the spiritual scene. Uh, I think, I think that uh, it's great to have insight, but the only thing that really matters is how we live it in our really ordinary, imperfect lives, right? Like.
0: It really does. Um, I'm preparing a talk for the S.A.N.D conference about the ethics of enlightenment and I'm also leery of the E-word, but the point being that there are so many examples of people who are supposedly enlightened or supposedly awakened who have not behaved in ways that one would hope or expect some higher spiritual development would. Involved? Do
1: you think that it's also because these people were placed in systems where they were expected to be not human, like where not where they're not allowed to be to express their imperfect humanity, so that yes, so that they are not just you know some kind of a projection of the collective culture or their group, but something you know like a real human being trying to live a.
0: Yeah, and some of them actually in private have explicitly said that that they they're they're trying to they, they don't want to sort of. Expose that more human side of them. I was I was once in a in a small room with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and about two other people, and he he was messing around with some drawing something and he put the marker down. He got some magic marker on his dhoti, and he immediately had to get up and leave the room and change dhotis and and come back because he you know he didn't want to be seen with magic marker on his dhoti. <laughs> um, so
1: you know right, like and then and then we become or like then there's this investment in in continuing to feed that idealized image to to the people who now are all hooked on you there's this like really weird way in which i th- you know i mean everyone always quotes this but, you know that the, the next guru the sangha is the next guru uh
0: Thich Nhat Hanh, the next sangha the next, no, next maybe may the sangha right
1: Right. There's something of that sense, but there's definitely, I feel like this weird relationship between the teacher and a student on one hand is so powerful and necessary or can be so, so tremendously useful. And on another level, it almost feels like it's, it, it always outlifts its usefulness and then turns into some kind of pathology or not always, but sometimes like I always question at what point does it turn, does it begin to... At what point does it outlive its usefulness as, as I don't know, yeah, I don't know.
0: There's a tendency for it too, and, and that's something the individual has to decide I think, because for many people, being with a certain teacher for a certain amount of time is very valuable, and then there's a time when it's valuable to leave, but that doesn't mean everybody should leave, that doesn't mean nobody should have a guru, the whole idea of a spiritual teacher is obsolete, I think. There's a place for it, but oh, it's a very individual consideration. I agree,
1: I agree. I don't know, I don't know. And I don't think this is actually my field, so I don't really know so much about this. But I just have some some kind of impulsive thoughts about that. Yeah. And I do feel like sort of ment- spiritual mentorship, that it's important to have teachers and mentors in our life. And that it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of a guru, an awakened person. Yeah. Right? That there's that that kind of a the kind of a spiritual friendship and relationship that develops with our, with our teachers isn't always doesn't have to be that full on
0: yeah it doesn't have and, to be hierarchical it doesn't have to be it can be more egalitarian more sort of peer to peer and uh everybody's got something to contribute everybody's got something to share but at the same time in the same breath you have to say that well some people actually have more farther. insight there, and yeah, more there, there is would. a higher there is a spectrum of spiritual development yep, and yep. you can't wipe that out but
1: and in a certain point of your spiritual de- development something is appropriate that is not appropriate and another time of your spiritual development and if we're lucky and if we're if we are graced we are graced with the with the teachers with enough integrity and kindness to to facilitate what needs to be facilitated at an appropriate time
0: yeah and uh, and I would say, and then maybe this will get draw us to a conclusion, but um, or at least a conclusion of this episode. But mm-hmm. I, w- I would say that a real key ingredient is earnestness and sincerity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two key ingredients. If you have both of those, really good. And, uh, then you're going to progress. I mean, look at you with with your sort of like on your knees earnestness. And sincerity in terms of willingness to sort of undergo whatever it took, and if you have both of those ingredients, you, you know you're going to progress quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't really know, and I don't, I don't even know if if progressing is is the thing. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe all this emphasis on progress, you know, it's like. That's kind of a masculine tendency, wouldn't you say? Like, oh, the, the spiritual life is so that we can progress, so that we can achieve something. So that, yeah. so, so I, I feel like I, I, mean. I know this so deeply in me. I want to progress. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this like other part of me that's like, maybe I won't progress. Maybe I, you know, like maybe there's a, a value to to real surrender and real surrender is like literally literally not even having the agenda of progress right like of of trusting that there is a deeper intelligence in life a deeper intelligence upon of that kind of that guides and unfolds each one of our steps and each one of our spiritual lives and that when we are in touch with that intelligence it has its own idea of progress, right?
0: That's a key point. I mean, I was just going to say, yeah, I feel like I've been progressing all, the, all these years, but uh, not necessarily according to my agenda, you know, not, or my conception of how it was going to go. Um, right. You know, okay. I couldn't have predicted or foreseen many things. Uh, but it has its own intelligence, and, you know, the whole process is one of surrendering more and more to that intelligence and letting it, you know, there's a, there's a saying, Brahman is the charioteer. Um, you know, letting Brahman take the reins it's beautiful, yeah
1: it's beautiful, yeah, and I know for me that's definitely the the constant orientation, the constant uh, sort of direction, you know, like how do I orient myself, how do I orient myself, how do I really s- how do I offer myself up how do I listen deeply enough so that i so that, that impulse you know like that impulse where you just something emerges from you mm-hmm. and then it takes you to that next breath to that next step to that next right? like i'm always just trying to listen deeply enough so that i can so that i can follow that impulse right like that true impulse not some kind of idea that oh i want to i want more of this now or more of that now so may we all be so guided by grace
0: lord make me an instrument of thy peace
1: Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Amen.
0: Beautiful, Vera. Oh. So I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We'll, yeah, I'm sure we'll have others, because um, you're going to be progressing, my dear. <laughs> 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 and so am I, mm. God willing. Um, so uh, I'll see you in a week or two. Uh, The SAND conference.
1: It's coming up up very soon. Yeah, it's just
0: time's flying. Um, And and, uh, anybody who can make last minute plans, go to the Science and Non duality conference page, or there's even a page of it on my website under upcoming interviews where you can get a discount if you sign up through that. Um, you can
1: you can watch the live stream. If you can't go, go to the to the conference directly, you can uh, watch the live stream and see all the main stage talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do, if you've always felt like you wanted to be there, but for some reason are hesitating, don't hesitate. Go. It's all going to unfold. It's like this beautiful field of miracles and syn- synchronicity and soul connection. Um, it really is. I think this
0: will be my eighth one. Um, wow. And there's also a thing, I don't know if everybody can do this or you have to have gone to the conference, I think anybody can do it, which is you can get them to send you the audios of all the presentations, like on a little you know, memory stick or a, or a mm. DVD or something. And um, they will probably you'll see a link for that on, on their website after the conference. But I did that and over the course of the last year I've listened to almost all the ones that I missed.
1: Wow, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, I would listen to things while I ride my bike and just cut the grass and stuff like that.
1: Oh, <laughs> Rick, thank you so much, it was such a pleasure, oh, you're
0: and I welcome. look forward
1: to seeing you again soon. Yeah,
0: I'll see you soon. So, let me just make a couple of quick wrap-up points. So, I've been talking with to Vera de Chalambert, I'll be linking to her website, she hasn't written a book, well, she's writing a book, it's not out yet, but if you go to her website, I'm sure you have some kind of thing on your site where people can, yeah, you do, where people can sign up to, be, to get your little email newsletters when you send them out, I'm, I get them. And, um you know, then people can be tuned into what Vera is doing. Vera also does interviews she does it for the for the sand website, and um, does, she interviews some of the same people I've interviewed, and others like um, Charles Eisenstein and um, Kabir Hominsky, whom I'll be interviewing in a couple of months. And oh,
1: Kabir, he's so delicious, he's such a gift.
0: Yeah, he's great. And um, I enjoyed your interview with him. So, you know, check, you can get, you'll be notified of those things if you subscribe to Vera's email newsletter. And what else? That's about it for Vera. (laughs) In terms of this show, it's an ongoing thing, as most of you know. And if you would like to be notified of other ones as they are published, you can sign up for my little newsletter. There's a link on the site. You get like one email a week. And there's also an audio podcast of this and a bunch of other things if you just explore the menus, you'll see some useful resources.
1: Can I end with a poem? Yeah, please. So, this is this is just a poem that really, really touched my heart and I think is quite appropriate for this time. It's by Martha Postlewaite and mm, it's I posted it on Hear
0: Facebook it. this morning, I you saw did. it. You did, isn't it Yeah, it's been, I got a huge reaction, so, people loved it. Go ahead, read it.
1: Do not try to serve the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is yours alone to sing falls into your open cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to the world so worthy of rescue. So may we each find our clearing.
0: Beautiful. Thank Thank you, you, Vera. Let's end it. Okay, thank you. Bye everybody.